Our scripture passage today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to God's word, we need his help, we need his spirit to give us his aid. So let us begin with a word of prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of being able to read and hear your word today. To have this insight into the words that Jesus spoke in his prayer. Father, we need your help to understand We need your spirit to convict us and comfort us and to instruct us and guide us. Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our sermon series in John's Gospel. And we have just finished the Upper Room Discourse where Jesus had been telling his disciples all they needed to know before he goes to the cross. And then we're told at the beginning of our verse today that when Jesus had spoken all those things to his disciples, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And here in our passage today is perhaps the most profound scripture of all the Bible, where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is speaking to God the Father. There is no greater prayer written down. There is no greater insight into the relationship between Jesus and the Father than here as he pours out his heart in prayer, one of the last acts before he is put to death. And we have this great privilege to look at this passage this week and in the weeks ahead, and this first section kind of introduces to us the heart of what Jesus is coming to pray for. Before we get into his prayer, I think it's helpful for us to think about why it is that Jesus here is now coming to prayer. He has just spent several chapters, of course, three years of his life with his disciples and teaching them all of these things. And yet, as we have noticed along the way, the disciples never really seem to understand things fully. And part of that is they're waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit that would lead them into all truth, right? And that's the essence of what's needed here, that Jesus is giving us an example here, that indeed they needed the teaching. Indeed, they needed the three years with Jesus. They needed to hear the truth, but what they needed even more was that God would do a work, that the Father would do a work, that the teaching would be wedded with God's work in prayer. As we look at this passage It's short. Usually we cover a lot more passages, uh, verses together. 
But there's so much in here for us to consider. In fact, the Gospel of John as a whole is one of these books that is often viewed in two ways as being shallow enough for a baby to splash in. Right? You, anybody can read the Gospel of John. Somebody who just heard about Jesus can read the Gospel of John and, and get it. It's plain. And at the same time, it is so deep, we would never be able to plunge the depths of the truths that Jesus is espound, expounding to us and his disciples. And so it is with this prayer. As we read through it, as we contemplate it, as we consider the implications of it, Oh, it's easy to understand, and yet so deep that we would never understand it fully. So Jesus, coming to the Father in prayer, before he is betrayed, begins by saying, Father, the hour has come. Remember throughout John's Gospel, the hour has not yet come. Mary wanted him to do whatever... Uh, tell tell the servants to do whatever he told them when he turned water into wine at the wedding of Cana, right? And he said, woman, my hour has not yet come. And he went on time and time again to say, it's not the time yet for me to be glorified. My hour has not yet come. And now he declares, the hour has come. The whole history of all of humanity, the creation of the world, comes to this hour. The hour on the calendar, if you will, in heaven. When Jesus came into the world, lived a life of obscurity, and then three years of ministry publicly declaring and showing forth God's glory, ultimately leading up to this hour, this hour when he would come and accomplish the work of dying on a cross that he might save the people that the Father had given to him. It has all culminated to this hour. It has finally come. Redemption is being brought into the world. And here is Jesus' prayer. He asks the Father to glorify him. Glorify your Son. Why does he want to be glorified? Why ought God to glorify the Son? What is the purpose of him being exalted? So that the Son may glorify you. Jesus' chief aim in everything he has ever done, his chief aim in coming to the world, his chief aim in being rejected by those he came to save, his chief aim in dying on the cross was to bring God, glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins wisely with this question. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Such a simple statement. And yet it seems to be quite in line with the chief end of Jesus Christ was to glorify God. And as we see at the end of this section, to long to be restored to the glory with the Father, just as it was before the world was created, to enjoy their communion with one another. Jesus is primarily concerned with bringing honor and glory and praise to the Father. 
goes on to say that the Father has given him authority over all flesh, over all mankind. Jesus has final authority. He is the one who has the power, the authority to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now we're beginning to see the depth of the relationship between God the Father and the Son and the people that Jesus has come to grant eternal life. That there are particular people that the Father has given to the Son and that the Son now has come and has accomplished the work necessary to grant them eternal life. All for God's glory. The main point we want to get to here, we're beginning to allude to in the prayer, is this phrase, eternal life. Our greatest need, eternal life, is only found in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. You see, we often seek life in many different things. Whatever they may be, the only one who has been given authority to grant eternal life is Jesus Christ. So that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. Looking now at verse 3, and this is eternal life. If Jesus is the one that can give eternal life, if the Father has given these people and Jesus has paid the way for them to receive, what is it that they receive? So sometimes we think about eternal life and we think, I get to live forever. Okay, and that's perhaps a helpful way to think of it, eternal life, life that never ends. Now it could also be said that all people will live forever in some sense, that at the resurrection some will be resurrected to life and others to death and God's wrath and judgment. And so both will live forever But in John's gospel in particular, this phrase, eternal life, it is a synonym for salvation. Seventeen times we are told about eternal life in John's gospel. And he gives us the definition of what it means to have eternal life, not merely living a long time. But that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Sounds kind of anticlimactic in our exciting, event-driven world. This is eternal life that they might know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. As we think about knowing God, what does it mean to know God? What is Jesus getting at here Well, we want to look at a few of the distinctions that he's making. First, he says that they would know you, the only true God. Okay, so what Jesus is saying here is, it's not that people don't know about a God or worship some God, but that they would know the only true God. We all have gods. When I was in college, we had a lot of international students we ministered to, and one of them was Indian. She was a Hindu, practicing Hindu, and uh, oftentimes we would uh, pick her up from the Hindu temple on our way back to college. It was back in in the Twin Cities. And uh, anyways, we we had got to know her, 
And, and we asked her a little bit about her religion and said, uh, you know, what, what, what's Hinduism about or what do you do? And she said, we worship idols. We're into idol worship. And I remember thinking, I've never met somebody that positively stated, I worship idols. It was kind of this jarring thing. And I realized that's, that's really what they were all about. And when we went and picked her up from the, from the temple, uh, we went inside. And, and indeed, they had these, these beautiful uh, curtains, right? Kind of something like that. And once in a while, a priest would come and he would let you have a peek at this ceramic, you know, porcelain image of some god. Those are not the one true God. Perhaps you and I, we aren't worshiping sticks and stones and statues. But there are many false gods in our world, are there not? Things that we look to for life, things that we trust in. It can take many different forms. But what Jesus tells us is that eternal life is having true knowledge of the one and only true God. So what does it mean to know God? How do we know God? How do you know him? There's a whole book that we're going through in our men's group right now that might help you along the course. I'll read a quote from there in a minute. But it's not much different than how we might think about knowing somebody else. How do you know other people? Now, of course, there's different levels of knowledge, right? So we're in an election cycle. Let's talk about presidents, but we'll do it in the least controversial way. We'll talk about George Washington. And you might start a conversation with somebody saying, hey, you know George Washington? And you're like, yeah, I know George Washington. What about him? Oh, you know, he was the first president of the United States. Yep. But neither one of you actually know George Washington. In fact, even if you lived at the time that George Washington lived, it's highly unlikely you would have known him. Even if you served in the military alongside him during the Revolutionary War, you probably still wouldn't have really known him. Now, as a historian today, we can learn tons of information about George Washington. We can figure out where he was born, how many kids he had, what his wife was like, the things he liked to eat, when he died, where he lived, right? Just tons of information. You can become a George Washington expert. You could probably write a PhD on the life of George Washington for just a year, right? Just one year of his life. But ultimately, you only know things about him. You don't actually know him. And those aren't necessarily in contradiction as we get to know other people. Right? The only people that knew George Washington were those who were close to him, those who lived life with him, those who, of course, learned information about him as they lived life together, but that they were involved in the intimate life that he lived and that were known by him. This is how we get to know people. Think of a young couple as they are beginning to date what do you do? You exchange information. Where'd you grow up? How many brothers and sisters do you have, right? There's information that's necessary, and knowing God requires us to have information. And just as we can do an information search on George Washington, well, God has given us his 
Revelation written down for us to know things about him, to hear what Jesus said, to see the works that he has done throughout history, to formulate statements like the Athanasian Creed rooted in the beliefs that are taught in the Bible. But the information does not get us to the place where we must be. Information does not give us eternal life. Jesus does not pray that they would give him information. Oh, Lord, that you would inform the people about your attributes. Know that we would know him. That we would be people who are growing in our knowledge of him, living in a life where not only is he revealing himself to us, but we are being more known more vulnerable before him, that the relationship between God and his people would be like the relationship between a father and a son, between brothers and friends. Eternal life is to know God. And how do we know God? We begin every week as we pray before our passage because we need his help to know him. Remember, uh, the, the Old Testament imagery of the judgment of God on a people is that they were blind and deaf and hard-hearted. If we're blind and we're deaf and we're hard-hearted, we can't know God. We can read the facts about him. We can write papers about him. We can even confess a, a great Orthodox creed about the Trinity. But unless the Spirit gives us new life, unless God responds in this prayer to make us alive, to give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see and the hearts to love him, see, that's what eternal life is. It's a work that Jesus gives through the Spirit connection to God and this growing relationship. Now we talked about this being shallow and deep, right? Because in a moment we can be regenerated by the Holy Spirit and we can know God. We can read his Bible and we've done it before, but now all of a sudden it has come to life. We can be reinvigorated to pray and yet we don't know very much. But that's where the depth comes from. Eternal life begins now. It is not a future reality, although it will continue on forever. Knowing God begins when the Spirit is at work in our lives as we are connected to Him. Knowing more about Him. Understanding more about ourselves in relation to Him. Having peace knowing that Christ has done this work for us. Knowing God. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, a passage you might be familiar with, beginning in verse 7. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Knowing God. Knowing God, the true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he had sent. Paul counts everything. Everything is, it doesn't matter. Nothing else matters unless I know and have been known by God. Interestingly, the probably fastest growing religion or religious beliefs in our country right now is nuns, people who would probably call themselves agnostics. Agnostic is just this word that's kind of rooted in gnostic means knowledge, and a means no. So no knowledge. I don't know. A gnostic person would say, I don't know if God exists. I don't think we can know God exists. But ultimately, usually alongside agnosticism is that it doesn't really matter. What matters is here and now. What matters is what we can know, you know, through whatever means the person wants to hold to. But that it's not possible to know, or at least I don't know. I have not been convinced. I'm agnostic. And yet, Jesus says here, if agnostic people, if if we feel agnostic towards something, and we think, you know what, I don't know, and it doesn't matter that much. Jesus couldn't make a stronger statement here that not only can you know, but you must know, and in fact, there is nothing more important than you knowing. that our minds and our lives and our hearts and our eyes and our ears would be opened. That we wouldn't be content to say, you know, I know God enough. I know enough about him for those who don't know him to be content to think it doesn't matter that much. Nothing could matter more than us growing in our knowledge and relationship to God the Father his Son, and the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. This is eternal life. This is salvation. Oftentimes, I try to always include in my sermon some way getting to penal substitutionary atonement, right? Jesus Christ died the sacrificial death so that sinners can be forgiven by a just and holy God. The gospel. And yet, even there... In Jesus' death and resurrection, it's not the end. It's the means through which we can know God. The gospel is that we can know God. That we can grow in our knowledge of God. That he is available to us. I would commend this book to you, J.I. Packer's Knowing God. I'll read a short quote here. That I think is challenging for us who know a lot about God. 
We need to face ourselves frankly at this point. We, perhaps, orthodox evangelicals, like us. We state the gospel clearly. We can smell unsound doctrine a mile away. Hey, that sounds like a Trinitarian heresy. If asked how one may know God, we can at once produce the right formula that we know that we come to God through Jesus Christ, the Lord, in virtue of his cross and mediation on the basis of his word of promise and by the power of the Holy Spirit via the personal exercise of faith. Yet the gaiety, goodness, and unfetteredness of spirit, which are the marks of those who have known God, are rare among us. Rarer, perhaps, than those from some other Christian circles where, by comparison, evangelical truth is less clear and less fully known. Here, too, it would prove that the last may prove the first and the first the last. A little knowledge of God is worth more than a great, a great deal of knowledge about him. A little knowledge of God is worth a great deal more than much knowledge about him. Oh, that the Spirit would be at work in us not being content to just know about him. Not just know about his character, but to live in it. That we would be people who can say, yeah, I know God. Eternal life is to know God and to live in his presence. There's great comfort in this prayer as we look to it, as we see Jesus' aim to bring glory to the Father by giving eternal life to you and to me and to all who trust in him. He is going to go on to pray for his disciples, and then he's going to go on to pray for those who will believe in him later. Jesus has glorified the Father on the earth, we're told in verse 4, as he has accomplished all of the work that the Father gave him to do, perfectly obeying the will of God the Father. And now he is asking to be glorified, to return to the presence and glory that he had with the Father before the world. Jesus, this same Jesus is praying for us. We are united to this same Jesus who is not inferior to the God who is praying to, but is God himself. And is now restored to this former glory that he had with the Father before the world. Our union with Christ unites us to God in this intimate knowing way. May we have hearts stirred to know him more. May we seek the scriptures, not thinking that in them they have eternal life, as Jesus rebuked the religious leaders in chapter 5, but that we would see Christ in them, that the Spirit would do that work in our lives, that we would grow in our love and desires for the things he loves and desires that we would turn away from our false gods and bring glory to the one true God. And that we would trust in Jesus Christ, the one who he has sent, the one who has given us this eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ has authority to give eternal life. 
We thank you that you are knowable, that your spirit speaks to us, reveals to us who you are, and illuminates your word to our hearts, changes us from wicked, sinful people into sons of God. Father, we cannot muster up in ourselves the ability to know you. It is a miraculous work of your spirit, and we pray that you would help us to grow. Help us to be discontent with our mere information and instead to be enlivened, to pursue you. Father, we need nothing more than to know you more, to live a life before you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.